Hey folks, and welcome to Brown and Out. Today we're talking to David Waller. How's it going today, David? It's going pretty well. I can't complain. The weather's warming up. Nice. Um, so, David, what are some things that folks should know about you? Sure. Um, well, my pronouns are they, them. Uh, I work at the University of Vermont, um, and I'm very happy to be back there. Um, and I also, on the side, work at a restaurant that's owned by a friend of mine. Um, I love to play pool, and I'm very uh, musical and um, artsy. Um, I play a lot of instruments, um, and I just really enjoy hanging out and listening to music and doing fun things. Chill. Yeah. Did Did you go to UVM? Yeah, so I went to UVM from 2013 to 2017. And your major was? Yeah, so I studied um, music education for the first two years, and then I switched my major to anthropology and kept music as my minor. Okay. Uh, were those lifelong loves, music and anthropology? Uh, music, yes. It's probably something I'll do for the rest of my life. I just decided I didn't want to do it for my career anymore. Um, anthropology I chose just because it's so, um, generic and versatile. I felt like I could do anything with it. Awesome. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about growing up? Sure. Um, just, I guess, (laughs) where were you born? Um, what's your family like? Things like that. I don't know. Sure. Uh, So I was born in Vietnam and then transracially, transnationally adopted into a white family. Um, And I grew up in Florida, Tampa Bay. Um, And I lived there from when I was two to when I was 12. So um, 10 years. And uh, my family is very close knit. Uh, My mother um, has a lot of extended family in Orlando. They they all live there. Um, it, well, obviously there's exceptions. There's a few in Maine and Tennessee and other places, but it's pretty much centered in Orlando. Um, growing up as one of the only people of color in a white family, though, it was a little challenging. Um, and so a lot of the conversations and experiences I share with my family don't really have to do with race. They have more to do with like shared interests um, like my mom and I both like to golf, um, and my family and I, um, we'll go out to meals together and we'll celebrate holidays together. Um, but race and sexuality and social justice aren't things that I really talk about with them. Um, just because of our different identities and, and me being one of the only people of color in the family. You, um, spent your formative years in Florida. Yeah. It sounds like. Um, are you aware of the Florida man meme? No, I, I'm not aware <laughs> of that. No, are you, um, have you seen the program Atlanta? Yeah. Okay. Um, there's an episode of Atlanta, um, where, um, Darius, um, sort of recounts the legend of Florida man. Right, right. Um, which is really, it sounds like, you know, the beginning of, newspaper headlines where it's like Florida man when maybe they don't it's an anonymous person they don't know who it is but it's not definitely the same person or is it or is it the same person the whole time like a boogeyman right right straight out of Florida can you can you relate to that at all um 
I don't know. I've never really heard of like that legend or there being such a thing. Um, but I will say that, you know, just like any place else, Florida is, is filled with, you know, mystery and, um, you know, just the unknown, um, the Everglades would be a good example of that. Um, I think every place has that sort of environment. Um, but it's interesting that you brought that up cause I'd never heard of that before. Did you spend a lot of time in the Everglades? No, I've only youth? been there once, I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, seems gorgeous. Seems wonderful. Oh yeah. It's, it's one of the, it's one of the most beautiful, um, for the most part, naturally preserved areas in Florida. There's a lot of urbanization happening, obviously in Tampa, Orlando, Jacksonville, Tallahassee. Um, you know, the environment is getting stripped away, but the Everglades is one of the only places that's like, it's not really touched partially because of the dangerous animals there, but also just because it's a protected, um, area. It's a park. Yeah. But for how long? <laughs> yeah. You know, what time will tell. Um, Florida's changed so much since I left. Um, I haven't been, I haven't lived there for 11 years, um, mm. but it's changed astronomically. Every time I visit, there's just more um, concrete mm. um, every time. Yeah. What are the manatees going to do? I don't know. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of endangered species living there, and I'm not really sure how that's going to go. So, so do you miss Florida, would you say? Uh, no. Your folks are still there? Um, my mother retired there um, uh, when I was a senior in college. She lives in Palm Coast, which is a little bit prettier and more natural than Orlando. Um, it's right on the water. Um, my mother's family still lives primarily in Orlando. Um, I don't miss it at all, though. The weather is not for me. The humidity is never for me. Um, and the people there just aren't very nice. Um, in the whole state, generally. Just in general. I mean, I don't make a lot of broad generalizations, but a lot of the people in Florida just aren't very kind. Um, not the way that, like, New Englanders and some, um, most of the people I've met um, up here have been. Um I think another issue I have with Florida, um, again, is just like the urbanization. I don't. I like to be in a small town. You know, Burlington's a good place for me, um, but I'd never, never, never want to live in a big city. Um, and that's like all there is down there. Um, so, the environment and the weather and the climate just—it's not for me. Uh, I don't. It doesn't need to be a shit on Florida podcast, but. What is it about what is it about Floridians that that makes them so particularly sure unpleasant? I think even though Florida is not part of the South, uh there's a lot of issues that coincide with like the stereotypical idea of the deep South. You have a lot of older white um cisgender people who um are retiring to Florida. Um it's like the place to go when you retire. Um and those kinds of people Again, don't like making broad generalizations, but overall, um, those kinds of people aren't very welcoming to people of color and to queer folks. Um, and, and it's not because they're 
mean or bad people. It's because they were raised a certain way and now they're retiring to this place and they don't have any interest in being educated. You know, they're like, I've been working for decades. I need to relax. I need to settle down. I don't want to be educated on social justice. I just want to, you know, have fun and be in retirement, play golf, whatever. And so I think that's a huge part of it. Um, another part is because of the big cities, you have a lot of gang violence, um, and the school system is heavily impacted by that. Like my school, uh, my middle school, um, it, it wasn't in the safest neighborhood. Um, and I think that just like organically makes people just not, people just aren't being friendly and nice because it's, 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 it's dangerous to live there. You know, the people, you have people who are afraid for their life. So why are they going to like be nice to you? Um, it's just that sort of environment. It's not good or bad. It's just different. You said that, um, you were one of the only, uh, people of color in your family. So not the only. Yeah. So I'm one of a few, um, so my sister is from China. She was also adopted. She's two years older than me. Um, and then we have a uh, cousin um, who I'm not really sure of her nationality, actually, um, because that's how not much time I spend with my family. Um, but she was also adopted. Her name's Lucy. She um, she must be in middle school now. Um, so she was adopted after I left Florida. Um, after I left Florida, it was really, really hard to keep up with people. And, um, because I'm not super close with my family every time, you know, somebody has a new kid or somebody gets married, I'm not there to celebrate with them because I live here. And so it's very difficult. Um, so yeah, me and my sister, Lauren, my cousin, Lucy, um, I'm pretty sure that's it. Um, the three of us, and we're all a PETA. We're all Asian, uh, Pacific Islander, Desi American. Um, and so, you know, like, you're not going to find any, um, you know, black folks or Latinx folks um, or indigenous folks in my family. They're not there. Um, we we have some distant family from Spain, and they are, are by complexion, um, darker, and so sometimes they, you know, they joke around and, and, you know, make jokes about, you know, not being as white as the rest of the family. But obviously that's, that's just a lot of ignorance. Um, they are white. Um, they're Spanish natives. They, they, they are from Spain, which is a white country. Um, they're not Latinx in any facet of the word. Um, but that's like the closest that my family is ever going to come. Um, because it's, it's just like white on white on white, um, white people marrying and having kids generation after generation after generation. I think growing up in a white family, my, um, you know, my Asian-ness was not talked about a ton. Um, first of all, race isn't talked about, like, let's start there. Nobody in my family is talking about race. Um, when Ferguson happened, I tried to talk to my mother about it and she was just like, this has nothing to do with race. And at that point I was just like, I'm never having this conversation with any of you ever again. Um, and that was a choice that I made, um, like a conscious choice. I was like, I'm not talking about race with this family ever. Um, and so that's just like the basis. Um, but then to move it a step further, a lot of my, um, my mother's family grew up, um, in a time of segregation, 
Um, and so they are very aware of the, the black white dynamic. Um, and a lot of them lived through it. Um, but they're not really thinking about other, um, POC, um, specifically indigenous folks, Latinx folks and Apita folks. Um, and that's not even just my family. That's, that's in general, a nationwide worldwide problem. Um, I think a lot of the times when talking about race, um, and it's very valid that folks are focusing on, you know, Black Lives Matter. And obviously, there's just so much value in that because of what's happening in our community and what's happening in our nation. Um, but I think other POC identities are erased. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's history there, right, um, around, you know, Japanese internment camps and Chinese um, workers who literally built the railroads and, um, you know, Latinx folks who um, migrated to the South and other parts of the country to get away, um, f to seek a better life. Um, indigenous folks who were here long before any of the rest of us. <laughs> um, they were here long before us, and they're not even getting talked about, um, you know, thinking about the land that we're on and um, you know, working at UVM, like, I think a lot about, like, what was this land before? Um, you know, Redstone Campus used to be a slave plantation. Um, the land before that was, you know, belonged to indigenous folks, right? So um, there's a lot of POC identities that are just systemically erased. And uh, um, I don't want to say forgotten, because I don't think anybody's necessarily forgotten about us. It's just nobody wants to talk about us. Um, and... The reason I've been thinking about this so much, um, there's been a lot of protests at UVM um, by a student group called No Names for Justice, and a large portion of the group um, identifies as black um, or queer or both. Um, and again, there's there's so much value and validity in that, but I really don't see a lot of APITA students um, included in that conversation um, or indigenous students um, and that's just something I've been tracking over the last two years since I've been back in town. Um, I, yeah, I don't know necessarily what we can do about that. Um, and I'm doing my, I'm trying to do my part as a UVM staff member to bring those voices in um, and, to, and to be that example for folks. Um, but the sad reality is there just aren't that many of us at UVM and in the community um, being included in these conversations. And and what do you think the solution to that could be? Yeah, like I said, I'm not really sure. Um, I think folks like me getting, you know, positions of power and jobs um, is a good start. Um, I work at police services at UVM, and, and that's like literally what people think of when they're thinking about power dynamics and racial injustice, right? It's like police brutality and the police and me being in that position. Um, and I think outreach to students is huge. Um, a lot of the APITA students at UVM are international students, so they don't really care about the quote-unquote in-house issues. They're not the ones protesting UVM because they're, they don't live here. They, they come from other countries. They come here just for the education. They don't care about, um, you know, the the white supremacy messages being put up at UVM because this isn't home for them. 
um, the, not the same way as someone like me who I live here. Um, this is my home. And so I feel a tug, a pull to get involved in these m- movements. So international students usually just don't feel that and or don't know about it. Um, there's also that facet. Um, so that's part of it. Um, and then another part is the amount of APITA staff at UVM is so minuscule. Um, like I was a student in 2013 and I didn't actually meet my first APITA moral model until two years later. Um, um, I had been at UVM for two years before I met like a really strong APITA role model. Um, not to say that he was the first APITA person I'd seen, um, but he was the first who sort of like took the time to meet with me, get coffee with me and talk to me about what it means to be a Peter at UVM. Um, uh, and then the next year I met another huge world model. Who's the one who like actually taught me the acronym of Peter, um, because he identified as a Desi man. Um, and they, um, as a community have been historically erased from Asian identity and, and Desi folks are folks from, you know, India and Bangladesh and South Asia. Um, all of those countries that again, people haven't necessarily forgotten about, but nobody's talking about them. Um, when you think Asia, you think China, you think Japan, maybe you think Thailand, Vietnam, if you're somewhat educated. Um, but you don't think about India, Bangladesh, um, and, and just Sri Lanka, all of those different countries. Um, and so he's the one who introduced me to APITA as a way to sort of bring those voices in. Um, but it's kind of sad. I've, I, I had been there for two years already and I was just learning that, um, even though I identify that way. Um, and so I think that's a huge issue. So, um, lack of staff, um, the international versus domestic student, um, perspective, um, I think saliency um in the media we're seeing a lot of black and latinx and afro latinx folks being killed and of course that's going to bring in the folks who identify that way into these protests you know they have a personal stake in it you're going to hold a black lives matter protest who do you think is going to be running it it's not going to be an asian person sorry um it's going to be somebody who sees that person on the news and says that could have been me um and the sad reality is a lot of APITA folks aren't instigating and um, initiating these protests. It's it's a lot of black and Afro-Latinx folks. Um, so that's all in all, not really an answer, but sort of a reflection on, on the question. Um, I don't really know what can be done about it. And, you know, you're doing my part and trying my best, but um, it's definitely a systemic issue. Yeah, and you mentioned lack of role models, and I feel like that can't be underestimated mm-hmm. you know um people needing to see folks that look like them you know out front doing yes. the work yep so what was that in part why you wanted to join the campus police yes actually um One reason was because I had worked with some of the police officers as an undergrad um, because I was an RA, I was an orientation leader, um, jobs that, you know, sometimes have to interact with the police, um, not in a bad way or anything, but like campus partnerships. Um, And I had just got back to town from graduate school 
um, and I was playing pool in the Davis Center, and one of the police officers came up to me, and I recognized her, and uh, she played a couple games of pool with me, even though she was um, obviously very busy, but she recognized me, and she's like, hey, let's hang out for a couple minutes, and she recommended that I apply, um, and I said, I'm not really ready to be a full officer, like, you know, with the gun and with the vest and all of those different things, but can I do anything else at the police services office? Um, and so I applied to be, um, a service officer, which is a civilian position. Um, and I essentially go around UVM at night to secure the campus. Um, so I make sure students aren't passed out in the buildings and nobody's destroying property. And I lock the buildings up so that the students who are coming in the next day can feel safe that Nobody's been in that building that night. And staff and faculty as well. Um, you know, staff and faculty with expensive equipment in their offices want to make sure that their offices are secure. So that's my job. Um, and, you know, I, you know, who knows, I could work my way up to being an officer. But right now, I'm just happy to be involved. Um, and one of the reasons, yes, that I applied was because I was like, uh, there are some people of color and some queer folks in this department. But the majority of the POC are black um, and the majority of the queer folks are queer um, in terms of sexuality and not gender. Um, there's, there was only one trans person in the police services, I think, um, when I was a student um, and I'm still really close with her to this day. And so now here's, here comes me, you know, I'm a non-binary person of color and um, I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to add to this and I'm going to, I'm going to, do what I can. Um, and then the last reason, um, was just because I've always had an interest in the law. I just didn't really pursue that until now. Um, I was working with college students and doing student affairs related stuff for the last five years. And, and I'm still doing that cause I still work at a college campus, but right now I'm more on the administrative sort of security side and less on the like student contact one-on-one -on -one meeting side. Cause I work at night and a lot of students aren't around. Um, you mentioned seeing a lack of representation, mm -hmm. um, and I know that you wanted to talk about navigating trans and non-binary identity in the workplace. Yeah. Why don't you, uh, take some time and talk about that? Sure. So after I left UVM, I went to the University of Rhode Island for grad school. Um, I was going to get a master's in uh, essentially student affairs, working with college students. They called it something different because the program had a lot of you know, history. Um, so the name was a little outdated, um, but it was essentially the same thing. Um, and I was the only, first of all, I was the only trans non-binary person in my cohort and in my department. I was working for housing. Um, and obviously I figured that out the very first day, um, because you find out very quickly whether or not there's folks who identify the same way you do in, in your job and in your classes. It's, it's, you can't avoid finding out, um, and you shouldn't have to. Um, and so that, there was that, um, and then I was, I was the only, um, I was one of the only people of color as well, um, and the only APITA person in my department. Um, and so I was like, oh, like, this is nothing surprising. I'm like, this was the same as UVM pretty much, but I'm in a new place and I have no friends, and that just, like, really added to it. Um, but my experience as a person of color was kind of 
shut down a little bit. I had to focus so much on my gender in that role because I was constantly advocating for myself and um, just the littlest things like, can you please use the right pronouns or where is the nearest gender inclusive restroom or um, can we talk about students that we haven't met yet in neutral language and can we not assume and why do we assume that this conduct case is a heterosexual relationship, stuff like that. Um, And it was to me like very simple things. Um, looking back, I've had, you know, years to reflect. Um, I was coming into an environment that was not nearly where UVM is in terms of social justice. And so I was feeling way too much pressure to educate people and not focusing enough on myself. Um, and so obviously I think the responsibility, um, was, was both mine and the department's. Um, and I eventually ended up leaving that job because it just became too toxic, um, and then I came back to Vermont, um, which was – I made that choice because I know a lot of people here, and I didn't know anybody there. Um, and I got a job um, with a social work agency working with kids, and I ran into a similar problem. Um, the issue with them wasn't that they weren't welcoming. It's that the needs of the kids came before the needs of the staff. Um, and so while – I almost never got misgendered in that job. Um, I I was not given the space to heal um, when when acts of bias or discrimination occurred because the kids were just so paramount in our minds. It was like, we're sorry for doing this to you, but we need to focus on the kids. Um, and I understand that now, and, and I figured out it wasn't the place for me. Um, but, you know, there's strike two on my... Um, non-binary journey of 2019 um it then um or 2018 i guess this still was wow um and then strike three um i after i left that job i got a job at target and i didn't even um come out to my coworkers because i was just like this is the third job i've had this year i can't lose this job um and so i just made the conscious decision not to um but that weighed on me as well and that taxed me because i was constantly being misgendered and um, and as a person of color, I was like getting confused with other employees cause it's target. And, you know, as awesome as the store is, they are white as hell and, um, corporate and, and they don't give a shit about employees. Um, and so I was like three jobs in the span of about a year, what is going on? And so I took a step back and I'm like, I need to find a job that heals me and gives me the space to be who I am. Um, and, but also like, I need to be able to advocate for myself without losing my job. Um, and so working at UVM has, has provided me with that. Um, I, I can advocate for myself. Um, and to a certain extent, obviously I'm new. Um, so I'm not like raising hell in the police department, but um, I can advocate for myself and, and take time. And I recently had a friend who was in the hospital and the police services was like, yeah, take some time off. And they were so understanding about it. Um, and I'm like, yeah, this is why I fucking love UVM. Um, some of them don't know about my identity yet just because I've only been there for like a week. Um, and I haven't talked to every single police officer, um, but the ones who do are super welcoming. Um and yeah, it's it's just interesting that sometimes, um, most of the time, trans non-binary folks, especially of color, 
have to choose between advocacy and paying rent and buying food. Um, there were a couple times in 2018 where I just didn't have the money to like eat or pay rent um, because I'd lost a job or I'd had to leave a job because of like toxic environments surrounding my trans non-binary identity. Um, and so it's just like, it's so real. Um, and I think a lot of folks um, who are not trans or non-binary or even are not queer just don't realize that. Um, that sometimes your identity can be the reason you're not able to eat or pay rent. Um, and again, this isn't anything I've talked to my family about because um, after the Ferguson incident, I wasn't really in a space to be like, hey, mom, by the way, I'm not your son anymore. Um, um, but, and also I've lost three jobs because of it. Like, I'm not really there. Um, and so, yeah, that's my two cents. Um, I would encourage people to keep advocating for themselves and find a job that's going to be welcoming to them. Um, but, you know, there's a balance to be had. You have to pay your bills um, and you have to eat. And um, at the end of the day, sometimes surviving and staying alive is going to help you fight another day. Um, and and I'm never going to stop advocating for myself, but sometimes I have to keep my mouth shut so that I can live to advocate for myself and so that I can eat and pay rent and do all these other things that I need to do as a human being. You mentioned um, taking time or rather not being able to take time uh, after acts of bias or hate crimes for self-care. Yeah. Um, what do you make of the Nazi propaganda that's been left um, on campuses and at um, yeah. social justice centers uh, or, you know, local organizations lately. Sure. Um, yeah, I think, first of all, I think a lot of the propaganda um, is being used to mask, like, the fact that white supremacy is so real. Um, I think folks, white folks... Um, like to say, oh, there's a difference between like being a Nazi and being a white supremacist. I'm not that bad. Um, and the people who are doing it are like, oh, I'm not a white supremacist. I just wanted to draw the swastika on your window. Um, and I think it's all a it's all smoke and mirrors. Um, you know, white folks um, don't want to admit that they may or may not have a part in the suffering of their peers of color. Um, and even good, well-intentioned white folks, um, even if you're not the one putting up the Nazi um, symbolage or whatever, you're not doing anything about it. Um, and you're friends with the people who are doing it. Um, and so I, I'm obviously saddened and I'm angered by... Um, you know, what's been happening, um, you know, at, uh, I can't even list them all, just so many places around, around uh, town and around the, the county. Um, and I think about the impact it has on young folks of color who, unlike me, haven't had the resources or the support to talk about these things. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of the high schoolers, um, who are seeing these things and experiencing these things. Um, but thinking back to when I was in high school, I did not have the emotional ability or the support I needed to talk about white supremacy or 
or racism. Um, and so I can't even imagine what these, these young people are going through. Um, and again, I just, I want to be there for them when I can, but it's not always possible. Um, and you can't even track how many incidences like this are occurring. There's just too many. It's happening way too much. Um, and the community of color, um, that is in the know and, or has the resources to do something about it is so small. Um, and the rest of us don't necessarily have the resources or the time or the energy, um, so that's what I think about it. And again, I think it's all just like it's smoke and mirrors. I think white people are just trying to dilute racism. They're trying to disperse it as if it's not as big of a problem or as concentrated of a problem as it is. Um, are you talking about this, the reaction that a lot of people have that goes something like, you know, Yes, even here, you know, in mm-hmm. Vermont. Yeah. So it's as if, you know, they're reminding you about their progressive reputation. Yep. And, you know, they're saying that they're in shock, that they're, you know, appalled and surprised that it's happening here. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was talking about before around like good intention, well intentioned white people. I think progressivism shows up as kind white people who are genuinely surprised that this stuff is happening, not because they're not because they don't know people who are doing it, but because they have trained themselves not to talk about race or have trained themselves to think that Vermont and Burlington specifically is just so forward thinking. Um, the argument of like, oh, there are people of color everywhere. I'm friends with people of color. Like I talk about race I can't believe this is happening. Um, uh, yeah, again, it's it's all just diluting the potency of racism. Um, the more white people who say, I'm surprised this happens or I would never do that, the less the problem is being highlighted and the more it's being invalidated. Um, I, I think what we really need is for white people to be like, I didn't do this, but I am sorry. Um, or I didn't do this, but... I have privilege and I recognize that. Or I didn't do this, but what can I do for you? Um, It's not my fault, but I want to take some responsibility to help you heal. Um, That's what I think, that's what I think would help. Um, But again, a lot of white people are just like, this wasn't me, so it's not my problem. You're a bit of a billiards aficionado. That's true. Can you tell us about... um what billiards means to you. Sure. My grandfather taught me how to play pool when I was very young, um, back when he was still alive and I was still living in Florida. Um, so I lived in Tampa. He lived in Orlando and I would visit with him very frequently. Um, and he used to take me to the university club in Orlando, which is like a super exclusive, um, essentially a white men club, um, old white men, um, and obviously at the time I didn't know any of this because I was a kid. Um, and all I knew that was that I was going with my grandfather to play pool. Um, and after he died, um, I started at UVM and UVM has pool tables in the student center. And I was like, I need to get back into this. You know, like this is a great thing for me to do. Um, and at first I was just like messing around and my roommate and I would just play. And um, it was like, hey, if you beat me five times, I'll buy you a milkshake, stuff like that, just like fun stuff. Um, 
and now I'm like super competitive. I play in tournaments. I have, I'm on like three league teams. Um, and I have my own cues, um, which is like a little too intense for some people, but I'm like, I'm so proud, um, because I worked my ass off to pay for them. Are um, they like monogram? No, um, none of them are, none of them are like personalized to me, but a lot of them are custom. It's like, there's like factory cues that you can get for like a hundred or 200 bucks off the, off the internet. And those are good cues for beginners. Um, and then you get up to the custom level, which is where I am. Um, and I have two custom cues. One I got as a, um, birthday present to myself one year, birthday slash Christmas. And then the next one I got as a graduation present for myself. Um, and then you have different cues for different aspects of the game. Um, so I have, I have a cue that's just for breaking. Um, and then a couple cues that, can be used for playing and I switch between them depending on like how I'm feeling and, and what I'm, what I'm doing. Um, and a cue is a very personal thing. Um, I don't need both of the cues, but I also can't bring myself to sell them or give them away because they mean something personal to me. They're customized. Yeah. How, how did you customize them? Well, I didn't personally customize them. Um, I have a, um, a friend, um, who deals cues and he buys from the manufacturer and then he sells to me. Um, and so when I say custom, it's like he will get a shipment in um, of custom cues um, and then sell them to me. Um, and then you have a step above custom, which is like when you personalize it. Um, and so I'm in the process of getting a personalized um but right now, which is just the back half of the queue, um, and I'm making it out of Purple Heart, which is um, um, a really, really hard wood. Um, it's like one of the hardest woods in the world. Um, and it's purple? And it's purple, um, and which is my favorite color. Um, and also, I just like love the way it looks as, as like wood, um, like the grain of the wood. Um, and so I'm getting that personalized. So that's like the top step. Um, and that is just something I've wanted to do for a long time and that I'm finally letting myself do. Pool is one of the only things I spend money on. Um, it's like my thing. Like some people like to go shopping. Some people like to go out to eat a lot. And some people play golf or play sports um, or play instruments or do whatever. Um, pool is definitely like my thing. Um, it helps me de-stress. Um, and I have a big pool community um, the restaurant I work at actually is owned by one of my um, friends that I made playing pool. Um, and pool has just meant a lot to me in terms of being able to clear my head, um, to feed my competitive energy. Um, I've made a lot of money doing it, uh, which is always a bonus. Um, and I, it's just fun. It's something that I can do, and it's something that I can do for the rest of my life. Um, you see, like, these old guys playing pool, like... And and I say and I say that very intentionally, because it's a it's a very masculine dominated sport, um, and so I don't mean to say that people of all genders can't play pool, but all of the people that are very very experienced and very very good in my community are pretty much man identified, um, and they're pretty much all white. Um, but again, it's it's not a place where I go to advocate about social justice. It's a place where I go to have fun. Um, so do you encounter racism in the pool hall? I actually have never encountered racism um, personally um, in in the pool hall. 
Um, people will say questionable things um, that aren't necessarily racist, but just like I'm like, ah, uh, that's not necessarily right. Um, and then I'll just correct them. I'll be like, this is the updated language. Um, oh, okay. And, you're you're out there doing the work oh, in the yeah, pool like, hall. Yes. People trust me, uh-huh. so like they'll listen to me. I, I'm not necessarily changing people or even getting them to use the new language, but I'm at least putting it out there. Mm. Um, and the same goes for like sexuality or, or gender. Like um, both of the restrooms in the new pool hall are gender inclusive. For example, the old pool hall, they were gendered. And that has nothing to do with me. Um, but it had something to do with the owners just push to be a little bit more inclusive. Also, it's better for business because if there's two open restrooms, nobody's like waiting in line or doing something like that. So it's also like a financial thing, but um, it's just a very inclusive place in general. Um, there are a lot of queer folks who, who play in the league. Um, it used to be owned by um, – the, the pool hall used to be owned by a queer um, uh, Vietnamese woman. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of, there's a big queer community, not a big community of color. Um, and there's a lot of young people who are getting into pool, which brings that new perspective and that new, um, sort of information and knowledge. Do you have a pool nickname? Uh, no, not right now. Um, I'm not too, I'm not that established. I've only been playing seriously for like four years um and the pool hall at the pool hall itself for like a couple years um so i'm not i'm nowhere near as experienced as some of these other people who 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 you know have nicknames and they they have so much respect in the community um but i am establishing myself and and i'm making a name for myself i think but um more than anything else just just something i'm doing for fun it never occurred to me that one might have to earn a nickname. Yeah, it's it's definitely something uh, that people impart upon you if you have um, um, a lot of experience. A lot of the professional pool players all have a nickname. You don't just get one the second you walk in the no, door. No, Come that's, on. That's not how it works. You're competitive. Yeah. May I ask... What your sign is. Hmm? Your zodiac sign that oh, is. Oh, Leo. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, then that makes yeah. a ton of sense. Definitely. Great. All right. Right on brand. Yeah. That's perfect. Definitely. David, what does black and brown queer culture in Vermont look like to you? I will say it looks very small and it looks very close-knit. Um, I can't speak for Vermont in general because I have only ever lived here and in um, Clarendon, which is right outside of Rutland. Um, I haven't visited queer communities or POC communities elsewhere in the state. Um, in Chittenden County and Burlington spe- specifically, I'll say it looks very exclusively inclusive. Um, and what I mean by that is once you're in, you're in. But it's not exactly it's not exactly easy to find and or um if you had just come to town you may not know where to go is what i'm saying but once you're in it's like people invite you to everything and like you're you're the person you know um which can be it can be good or bad 
Um, but once you know about the community, it's very welcoming and it's very good and it's resourceful and it's people are there for each other. People band together, um, whether it's UVM or the greater community. Um, you know, there are events where you'll see the same faces, the same black and brown queer folks, um, because you meet one time and you you want to hang out all the time. You meet one time and you want them to speak at your next event. You meet one time and you trust them because of shared experiences. When do you feel most browning out? I think when I'm giving a presentation or educating to folks, um, whether it's at a conference or um, recently I, uh, I guess, lectured for an anthropology class at UVM, like Monday, actually. Um, and I, I was very upfront about them, about what my experience as a student had been, um, because this is an intro to anthro class, and I'm telling them why you should choose anthropology and why anthropology is useful. But you know me, I'm not just going to go in and do a cookie cutter presentation. And so I went off on a tangent about social justice and, and, you know, part of doing well in class is navigating your personal life and all of you are going to struggle in some way or another. The room was mostly white, but it was also mostly women presenting. And I say that cause I don't actually know. Um, and it was mostly first and sophomore, first year and sophomore students who again are struggling um, and so I told them, you know, I'm a person of color, I'm a queer person of color, and this is my experience, um, and I'm going to be real with you. And so that's when I feel the most brown and out. I think presenting and educating is just so healing for me. Um, I presented at TIC, Translating Identity Conference at UVM last fall, and I'll be presenting at the Dismantling Rape Culture Conference in April at UVM. Um, I presented at NASPA and ACUI and all of these different organizations um, for higher education. Um, and that is when I feel the most myself, um, when I'm leading discussions and, and giving presentations um, and when I can just be who I am in that space and not have to be questioned. Um and it's something that I do for me and only me. And if I want folks to get something out of it, obviously, and I'm there for them, but I'm doing it for myself. Um, it's not about the money. Um, and it's not about the prestige. I don't care about bulking my resume like I did when I was applying for grad school. That's not as important to me anymore. Um, I want the experiences and I want to be able to say, like, that person I want people to say about me, that person is why I'm doing social justice work. Or um, in the case of last summer, I was a, a faculty member for the Student Social Justice Training Institute, which was being held at UVM. And my students still to this day are giving me updates and posting things on social media. Um, like SJTI changed my life and, and we love you so much. And, and, and I talk to a lot of them like on the daily. Um, not all of them, obviously, but some of them I got really close with. And it's that sort of experience when I feel brown and out, when I can be like, yeah, this is me, take it or leave it. Um, and if you love me for it, great. If you don't, there's the door. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, David. You are so welcome. Thank you.